So here we are again, Richard Pierce at your disposal with the third short story of five from uh, The Gates Short Story Collection. Yes, I've not shaved this morning. Well, there you go. Can't win them all. Anyway, this is The Dig. When exactly I started digging, I can't remember. It was during the Ebola scare in 2014, that much I do know. It just happened on a Sunday, any Sunday in the autumn of that year. I was outside chopping wood and for some reason I just picked up one of my shovels and started to put a hole in the ground, swearing at the hard soil, underneath one of the garden sheds, out of sight of the kitchen window. It had to be my secret after all, that hole in the ground, and it sort of took off from there, my breath steaming up into the trees my back sweaty and hot under my shirt and my jumpers. The Ebola crisis fizzled out in the end, but not before over a hundred people in England had died and well over a hundred thousand in Africa, and half that number in America. Those were frightening times, and that's probably what spurred me on to dig further and deeper. I started reading scientific articles about the existential risks facing the Earth, and they frightened me even more. It wasn't just a case of the science fiction type theories about us being hit by a huge asteroid or aliens invading or Yellowstone Park exploding. It was about all the damage we could inflict on ourselves and not just the slow, gradual death through poisoning the environment, but ultimate, immediate cataclysms we could bring to bear on ourselves. Pushing science too far, inventing tiny self-assembling machines that would replicate and overrun the world in the space of 24 hours, or becoming servants of robots we'd built that were sentient and more intelligent than us. Making science too easy and making it possible for one person, just one, acting alone, to bioengineer an airborne disease that would just sweep across the planetscape and wipe each and every one of us out in the space of a week. So I kept digging, and not just at weekends, away from my family's eyes, but during the week too, when they were all at school and at work, and when I was supposed to be working from my office in the house. I crammed as much digging into daylight as I could, and did my office job, after they'd all come home, compressing my working hours more and more into fragments and shards of hours, into an odd quarter of an hour here and there. I looked at plans on the internet of how to build underground houses, how to filter the air from the outside, how to recycle it, how to recycle bodily waste hygienically and usefully, how to become self-sufficient from the world above the ground. And of course I started to spend every last bit of cash I had on fitting out this hole in the ground, which was two holes by now, two comfortable holes, already livable in. A year later, I'd extended the dig to four rooms, all properly insulated, all fitted out with basic furniture and with all the equipment I'd need to live down there with the family. All I needed to do was to stock it with canned food, bottled water and anything else that would sustain us through the coming apocalypse. What I didn't want to do was to buy all my supplies at the same time, for fear of alerting anyone to what I was doing. They'd all think I was paranoid, or what might be worse, that I knew something they didn't. And then they'd all start panic buying. And I didn't want that. I wanted to be the only one who'd be prepared for what was coming. The only one ready to face danger when it arrived. 
I knew I was being selfish, but I didn't want to do what I'd always done and think of everyone else first and me last. I started to make a list of exactly how much food and drink I'd need for a family of six to survive for two years. When I looked through the list and worked out the dimensions of it all, I realised I'd need two more rooms at least, so I started digging again and postponed the day on which I'd planned to tell my wife, Olivia, about the underground escape. It seemed hard a second time round, the digging, and my body less flexible, less willing to dig for hour after hour, alone and in silence, and keeping it secret felt even more of a betrayal than the first time trying to hide the pain and the stiffness of manual labour I'd never been accustomed to. I could imagine Olivia accusing me of being like the American creationists and survivalists we'd always made so much fun of, disparaged as right-wing freaks. I tried to push all those thoughts to the back of my mind while I was digging, and then putting in more supports and walls and shelves and air purifying filters. At least I could stand up straight in here, not like in some of the shelters I'd seen where you'd be bent double if you were more than five foot tall. You think I haven't noticed, Olivia said to me one evening, late summer, almost two years after I'd started the dig. We were sitting outside drinking cold white wine, faces turned towards the sun. Noticed what? That you've been up to something you don't want me to know about. I don't know what you mean. I gulped down the rest of my wine. You've lost a lot of weight, she said. Don't you like that? That's not the point. What is the point, then, I said, crossing my fingers behind my back. I don't like you lying to me, she said. That should have been my cue to tell her, to show her around the new home for us all that was right there, under the chairs we were sitting on, in the evening sun, to tell her that I feared for her, for the children, for the world, for me. It's a surprise, I squirmed at the lie, for your birthday. But you've been doing this for ages and my birthday is not for another four months. It's something really special, I said. She smiled. I guess I'll have to trust you then. Like you've always trusted me, I said. That's right. She kissed me and only stopped when the children started shouting at us through the open kitchen window to stop being such perverts and embarrassing parents. Dinner was quiet. I know you're lying, she said that night in bed. You've been digging for well over a year. How do you know? Women always know what their men are doing, she said, and stroked my arm. Are you going to tell me what you're up to? The moon was full and the night warmer than it had been for many summers, so I walked across the garden with her in the silver light. I opened the door to the shed and reached down to pull up the heavy trapdoor I'd installed. What the f... she gasped. Wait, I said, just wait and see and let me talk. She climbed down the ladder ahead of me and I pulled the door closed above our heads. You could have told me, she said, her blue eyes sad under her brown fringe. You thought I wouldn't believe you, didn't you? I nodded, and that you'd think I was mad. I'm not stupid, she said. I can read. Sorry. She hugged me. Don't be, she said. She looked around the neon-lit room. Show me. All of it. The lights picked out a shape through the cotton of her nightshirt. We held hands as we walked through each Spartan room, two of them empty except for the shelves. Our whispers echoed through the void, and then we christened it in the bed I'd built for us. The next morning was like the first morning of our honeymoon. Will it happen sh soon, she said that evening. 
I shrugged. Not before I've got the supplies, I hope. Let's both buy them, then, just so we're ready. What about the children, I said. We can't tell them. It'll scare them. Shouldn't they at least know there's a shelter if anything does happen, I said. She shook her head. They might tell someone by accident, and then we'll have the council snooping round because I'm guessing you didn't apply for planning permission. <laughs> I laughed. You'd be right. I rubbed my face, tired. What about everyone else in the village? All our friends? We need to be selfish to survive, she said. It sounds callous, I know, but she didn't need to finish the sentence. She knew me and my weaknesses too well. The rooms filled up gradually with everything we thought we'd need, and even then we worried we wouldn't have enough. What would life underground be like anyway? Maybe we'd be lucky and we'd never need it. When we'd finished stocking up, the shelter became our love nest rather than our last refuge, and after time we lulled ourselves into that false sense of security that humans so gladly take peace from. There was no warning the day it happened. They came from the east just as the sun was rising. I was out in the garden smoking what would turn out to be my last cigarette when I saw them. I say them, but it was just a big black cloud like tiny bats racing across the sky in formation, taking chunks from the sun and making the new day dark. I raced back into the house and taught Olivia and the children from their sleep from their beds. Thank God we were all at home together. Now, come on, no questions. Just grab something warm and get downstairs with me. The first specks of dark were already flying into the trees, cutting them down when we raced out of the back door. The shed! Into the shed! I called, grabbed them and pushed them in. I slammed the door shut above our heads, the lights already on. They sat down on the simple chairs, the children looking bewildered. Olivia resigned. I turned on the computer, loaded the images from the outside cameras. Already the shed was gone, and all around there was nothing but a wasteland to be seen. In a few moments, the creatures, whatever they were, had managed to rip apart everything that had once been our home. I swivelled the cameras in a circle. Nothing, nothing as far as the cameras could see. Even the grass had gone. I felt a nip on my arm, sharp and insistent. I looked down. A small black speck was growing larger on my shirt. I tried to rub it off. It wouldn't move. I'd brought it in with me. Oddly, I didn't panic. Felt instead a peace flooding through me, overwhelming the pain. I stopped trying to brush it off, leaned back in my chair and watched it build itself a companion. And then another, turning itself into a suit of armour around me. I looked at the others. The same was happening to them. John, it was Olivia's voice, almost. Her eyes looked at me, alive, almost, and smiling. It's a new beginning. And then she was submerged behind the black armour, her blue eyes the only light. That was two years ago. We haven't had to touch the food we stored. Our memories haven't been consumed. Just our bodies. And our will. We have become them. And today we will leave this hive to find another. <laughs>